Hello and welcome to What is Cream Soda, the podcast where we normally have aimless discussions with pointless answers, but today I will be doing quite the opposite. This episode is effectively a promotional episode for a personal um, endeavour of mine, another podcast by the name of The Headline with Sam Hewlett, me, uh, which will be linked in the description uh, for this podcast. This show would be me taking a headline from recent news and diving deeper into the story behind it mostly focusing on politics and current affairs, but that left me with a problem for this promotional episode. I would usually discuss a specific story that is topical to the moment in time, but I thought that that wouldn't be quite right for this episode. Instead, I wanted to do a bigger story that would transcend recent news, a story that had been in the news for long enough to be familiar, but that would also remain relevant for anyone listening at any point in time. I found that topic, and it starts with a history lesson. In 1787, one of the most important documents in the history of the world was written, and that isn't an exaggeration. The United States Constitution was created a little under 234 years ago, in September 1787, and from that, the United States, as we know it, was formed, with some unsurprising changes, but with that same document as the foundation of its being. And I just want to take a moment to define what what a constitution is. Contrary to popular belief, every political system has a constitution. Every political system that has ever been and ever will be. Because a constitution is simply a set of rules and practices that underpin a polity or political system. It is literally as vague as that. Therefore, any law in a country, any tradition or convention, any judicial precedent or ruling becomes part of a country's constitution. However, what made the United States Constitution different was that it was written as a document under the headline, the Constitution. It's what is called codified, and it's intended to be the be-all and end-all of the rules and practices that would underpin the US. It's not quite the case, as even the traditions of America are part of the US lowercase c Constitution, even if they're not part of the document that's called the United States Constitution, which, just for note, has an uppercase C if you were ever to refer to that specific document. But anyway, the US Constitution is the longest-lasting codified constitution still in use today, and it's protected by a status that effectively makes it a higher form of law than the regular laws passed in the US. To amend the Constitution, you need the support of two-thirds of the Senate, two-thirds of the House of Representatives, and three-quarters of all state legislatures, legislature being a lawmaking body. And if you want to put that simply, it's incredibly hard to change and requires an overwhelming number of different actors and different bodies to agree. This isn't surprising, though. Given the US Constitution is considered a document built on compromises, which is entirely fair to say, The Founding Fathers, as they were known, wrote the Constitution to be full of compromises between fundamentally contradictory positions. 
Some founding fathers wanted Congress for the whole of the US to be able to override all state legislatures, to be able to make rules for the entire country with no limits. And others wanted the individual states to have a level of sovereignty, to be able to control themselves. But a compromise was formed. The US Congress would have uh, the power to regulate commerce and would get some emergency powers if necessary and proper, but not complete powers. Some founding fathers wanted democracy and others, like the now well-known Alexander Hamilton, wanted appointed or even hereditary positions. A compromise was formed. The House of Representatives would be elected and the Senate would be appointed by the states and the president would be elected by a select few people called the Electoral College. Now, some of that's changed, but not completely. We still have the Electoral College, for example, which many people consider outdated. But the principle still stands. You know, some founding fathers wanted slaves to be counted as full citizens under the Constitution, while others didn't. In fact, it was, it was more complicated than that. Those who supported slavery didn't want slaves to be counted as a full citizen as it would entitle them to rights that they weren't deemed deserving of, like voting, for instance. But they wanted slaves to be counted as part of the population because this meant that they could get more people to represent their state in Congress. Because the number of people you get to represent, basically the number of lawmakers you have representing your state, depends on your population. So, a compromise was formed. Let me read you the compromise directly from the text of the Constitution. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union, according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding the whole numbers of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years, and excluding Indians not taxed, and three-fifths of all other persons. Let me just translate that for you. A population will be counted by adding the number of free people to three-fifths the number of slaves. It's as simple as that. And you might have already figured out that this more or less meant that African-Americans were deemed to be worth three-fifths of a white person. Now I think you can see my topic for this episode, a story that takes place in both history and modernity, a story ingrained not only in the text of the US Constitution, but in the attitude of many people to this day. And it's racism. Specifically in this circumstance, anti-black racism, but we will deviate from that to some degree. Now, the reason I went through the Constitution for so long, other than trying to be generally informative, is because I wanted to demonstrate how entrenched racism can be within a system, and particularly how entrenched it is in the US. Many people want to separate the idea of the USA as a concept from racism, but it should be made clear that racism is a significant part of American history. And many people learn this, which is great and incredibly important, but education on this matter isn't brilliant. You know, we can start with slavery. It's often omitted from textbooks that George Washington became a slave owner at just 11 years old. You know, or it's told that he had wooden teeth when in fact his teeth were made from the teeth of his slaves. People like to brush over the fact that most historians believe that Thomas Jefferson started a sexual relationship with a 14-year-old slave of his, Sally Hemings, impregnating her six times. And let's not forget that the consent is at the very least questionable when you own the child 
you have sex with. But the poor race education in the US is most evident in education about the American Civil War. First things first, what the war was actually about. According to the Pew Research Center, 48% of Americans think that the war was about states' rights, and only 38% think that the war was about slavery. It's very likely to be the case that this is what you were taught as well, uh, even if you were in another country, like many of our listeners are. But if you're more skeptical about the view that the war was about slavery, let me ask you a question. If the war was about states' rights, what rights were they fighting for? The answer is they were fighting for rights about slavery. The Confederacy, or the southern states that seceded from the Union, wanted to maintain slavery. And if you're still not convinced, have a listen to this speech by Alexander Stevens, who was the vice president of the Confederacy. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. The truth couldn't be more explicit. At this point, you might be thinking how it is possible that such information, misinformation could be taught. And this requires an understanding that due to the sphere of socially accepted political opinion, known as the Overton window, for those who care, it is advantageous for those who believe in some form of racial supremacy to separate themselves from any explicit indication of their racism. Let me clarify. The majority of racist people would not say yes if you asked them if they were racist. This doesn't mean that they're any less racist, however. But what it does mean is that promote fundamentally flawed and racist worldview to people who are not going to be susceptible to something openly racist. Imagine a conspiracy theorist trying to convince you to believe one of their conspiracy theories. Would you be more convinced if they said, I believe in a conspiracy theory that Area 51 houses aliens? Or if they said, the government hides many things, such as their military capabilities, so why wouldn't they hide the fact that they found aliens that would benefit some research? Of course, the latter is more convincing. Much how it's better to say the civil war is about states' rights to make their own laws than to explicitly say uh, the civil war was about states' rights to make their own laws about slavery. If you can ignore there is racism in an act or a system, then the racism in that system is no longer socially deemed racist. Imagine you have never been taught that slaves were black. If you had never known that slaves were black and it was suggested to you that slaves were of all different races, and slavery wouldn't have been racist. You wouldn't have perceived slavery as racist. So many Americans don't perceive the Confederacy as related to slavery, and thus don't see the Confederacy as bad. They see the Confederacy as their heritage, their ancestry as part of them. This is where a strenuous and ahistorical way of teaching ties back to reality. So imagine again that you had been taught that the Confederacy had nothing to do with slavery. And as such, you associate with all these positive things about your family history. The Confederacy, in your eyes, is good. It's your history. It's your heritage. And now you find out about slavery. But rather than allowing yourself to change your mind and change your 
positive perception of the Confederacy, you have confirmation bias. You are biased towards information that fits your preconceived positive view of the Confederacy. But you might also know that it is irrefutable that the Confederacy was built on slavery. So what do you do? You can reconcile the horrors of slavery with your positive view of the Confederacy. Well, maybe. Slavery wasn't that bad, you know? Maybe slaves wanted to be there. Maybe they were treated okay. That's one way of reconciling those beliefs. Or perhaps a, a different way. They, they deserved to be slaves. They were, you know, they were naturally subordinate. Instead of recognising the horrors of something you appraised your whole life, you instead conclude it was either not that bad or it was just a way of demonstrating white supremacy. It's very possible you are thinking right now that you get the point, but we have reached 1865, the end of the Civil War. And 1865 is closer to the start of an independent USA than it is to today. There's a lot more history. Jim Crow. Jim Crow were sets of local and state laws that were passed after the Civil War to enforce legal segregation of white Americans and African Americans. These were specifically designed to counter efforts made to promote black communities and improve the conditions of black people after the Civil War. It was a, a response uh, to economic and political advances made by black people. They had become wealthier uh, after managing to start businesses, they had become educated from public schooling, and they were now free. They were now allowed to vote under the US Constitution. So in response, Jim Crow laws were passed. They introduced segregation, and then proceeded to reduce funding for black services such as schooling and transport, and in many instances, facilities were deemed white only, without any alternative left for black people. Furthermore, restrictions were placed on voting, but not directly. Times that people could vote were limited, tests were introduced to earn the right to vote, tests which black people disproportionately failed because their schools were underfunded. Perhaps the most ridiculous part of this can be summed up in one question. What's the benefit? White people didn't gain much at all in real terms. The gain was all relative. It is less that white people were advantaged and more that black people were explicitly and overwhelmingly disadvantaged by the system in which they had no choice but to engage in. This started out just on a local level with schools, restaurants, toilets, water fountains, transport, parks, people's everyday lives. It was even upheld by the Supreme Court in 1896 under a doctrine that became known as separate but equal. But I hope I've made clear how equal it actually was. It wasn't until 1954 that the Supreme Court started cha to challenge these rulings, start, uh, starting with the segregation of public schools. Th that ruling was the first of several, with the second major event in the civil rights movement coming because of a woman named Rosa Parks. Now, I'm going to cover this incredibly briefly because I really hope that you've been taught this story. December 1955. Rosa Parks sat on a segregated bus in Montgomery, Alabama, in the designated section for black people, which was at the back of the bus. A white man walks on, can't find a seat, so she, along with three other black passengers, was asked to vacate her seat, and she refused. 
and she was arrested, igniting public outcry and making her the mother of the civil rights movement. A boycott of the Montgomery bus, uh, buses lasted 381 days, and in November 1956, just under a year later, the Supreme Court ruled bus segregation unconstitutional. But just before that, a movement called the Montgomery Improvement Association was formed, with the Baptist minister taking the lead. He was called Martin Luther King Jr. Protests led to legislation, and legislation led to desegregation, increased voting rights, and a greater level of legal equality. I'm not going to attempt to retell the civil rights movement more than that at present. Not only would it take a very long time, but I would be doing an insultingly brief history if I attempted to. But the point is, after the civil rights movement, there was racial equality under the law. But under the law is the key part of all of this. The law does not immediately influence society in the way which we would like. Legal equality does not mean true equality in everyday life. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 and other civil rights legislation around this time may have, been may have established legal equality, but this cannot be used to argue that all systemic and systematic racism stopped existing at this point, despite what a number of people may seem to argue. A comparison to this would be the feminist movement. It's quite fitting at this point. First wave feminists uh, established that women have the same political rights as men under the suffragettes and suffragists. They got the right to vote. Second wave feminists focus on the key social issues such as sexuality, rights to work, reproductive rights, as well as the facto inequalities that weren't explicitly legal. And then third wave feminists continue this work into more social issues while diversifying feminism into sex positivity, transgender rights and intersectionality. If we broke the fight against anti-black racism into waves, like feminism, then we would have the Civil Rights Act as the first wave, but what's the second? I propose to you that the second wave of anti-racism is now. Second wave anti-racism is the opposition to br police brutality. It is the call for reparations to slavery. It is the cry for equal socioeconomic conditions. Second wave anti-racism is what we have only just started to listen to. Black Lives Matter is easy to say and easy to believe, but putting it into action requires further acknowledgement of, syst of systemic and systematic issues. For instance, we can't simply ignore the fact that it has uh, been shown that 95% of US police departments arrest black people at a higher rate than other racial groups, including when you adjust for proportions. We can't ignore that in the US, black people uh, were nearly four times as likely to be arrested for cannabis offences as white people, despite, being, uh, despite having similar rates of usage. But it begs the question, what do we do with this information? What does it mean? Crime and the relationship between communities of colour and the justice system is one of the most focused elements uh, within the discussion of racial justice, with significant reason. Firstly, the US justice system consistently and systematically mistreats black people at higher rates than any other ethnic group. That is shown by the likelihood of black jurors to be dismissed, shown by the disparity in sentences for equal crimes, shown by the fact that even the public have been shown to believe the, the police are more justified in using force against a black man than a white man, when both are a similar size and when both are unarmed.
it is a fact that simply cannot be ignored. But there's a second truth in the story uh, that is easier for some people to accept, but harder for others, just as uh, it's true for systemic uh, mistreatment of black people in the US justice system. Black people, proportionally speaking, commit more crime in the US than the national average. You may not want to believe me on that, but the data presents itself. However, it is not enough to have those two facts coexist to excuse each other. There must be an underlying reason. We know one underlying reason of unequal outcomes in the justice system is systemic and systematic discrimination, but there must also be reasons why black communities in the US commit more crime. Now, it is a scientific fact uh, that these reasons are either one of two things. It's either genetic or environmental. Nature or nurture, as some people put it. Given studies um, have been performed, and given limited genetic differences between people of different races, we must conclude that the reason communities of colour commit more crime is environmental. The environment that communities of colour are in leads to higher crimes. But why? Let me explain how the American education system works. Uh, State-funded schools in the US uh, are funded by property taxes. This means that house prices in an area determine how much uh, funding a school gets. If you live in an area with uh, higher house prices, like much of the suburbs, then the school in your area is going to be better funded than an inner city school uh, in the area with lower house prices. Now it is, of course, clear that lower income households are going to be forced to live in areas with lower house prices and so they can't afford to live in other areas. Therefore, having a lower income means you receive worse schooling than those with higher incomes. And as you can guess, worse schooling leaves people with fewer opportunities, particularly fewer employment opportunities. With that, you exasperate poverty, which leads to desperation, and desperation leads to crime, mostly out of necessity. But once this cycle starts, and this crime is established, and it also becomes a normalised part of that environment. Hopefully this kind of explains the systematic oppression, but I think it's worth highlighting the reasons that this entrenches racial divides as well as just class divides. It does require us to think back to the civil rights movement. The policies and legislation that followed the civil rights movement failed to be proactive. They were fundamentally reactive policies. That is why they may have failed to uh, solve issues of legal equality. Uh, they failed to solve social equality. You may have heard this before in different terms, namely the difference between desegregation and integration. Communities of colour were forced into different neighbourhoods, and as we discussed, these neighbourhoods were underfunded and had limited resources. This would make the area cheaper with lower house prices. Hopefully you can see how this kind of links in. Additionally, it is not enough to desegregate, because they were limited from working in many jobs, but they also had received lacklustre education for generations. Hence the divide we've already discussed remained. However, it wasn't purely education that divided these communities, and segregation became easy to enforce through extra-legal measures. When segregation was legal in certain areas, local governments restricted funding to facilities and black neighbourhoods, but this continued even when it was outlawed through different means. A process known as redlining became more common in many parts of the US, particularly in urban areas. 
redlining was effectively the uh, systematic denial of services to people who lived in communities known to have a minority ethnic background. Essentially, because people hadn't been integrated into other communities, they remained segregated. Not forced to by law, but forced to by uh, the lack of material means to integrate. This was then exploited by private actors, by various businesses. The underfunding of local services was no longer done by the government, it was done by denying people who lived in minority ethnic communities loans to start new businesses, or to, or even student loans to go to university. It was done by rating them higher risk and having higher insurance premiums. It was done by deliberately opening a new supermarket branch away from the community, and other similar practices. This prevented the ability for those communities to break the cycle of poverty by introducing various new uh, employment and education opportunities, and prevented a reasonable standard of living by even denying insurance in some instances. Even despite this, there is a, still a system of implicit or unconscious bias within the US that is incredibly prominent. Statistics aside, I want to present an example on a more human level. When someone is mixed race, specifically in this scenario, one black parent and one white parent, are they deemed more white or more black? Quite plainly, the answer is that they are considered more black. And this comes from a subconscious awareness of white purity perpetuated by these systemically racist systems. It is not necessarily unfair to consider a mixed-race person to be more black, as their life experiences are more likely to resemble less of a black person than of a white person, because they're subjected to the same biases. At this point, I may have lost some of your support in the sentiment, so I want to articulate a point. Who was the first black president of the United States? Barack Obama, of course. But how much talk was there of him being black rather than mixed race? As far as the media and much of the public globally were concerned, he was black. And for a non-racist society, the distinction would be meaningless. It fundamentally wouldn't matter what race or variation of races you were, but we don't live in that society. But Obama is also a good example of implicit bias in another sense. His debate team have explicitly uh, explained that during his pre preparation for his debates, he was carefully guided on not being too animated or confrontational, which at first sounds entirely fair, but the same isn't asked of white candidates. I don't think anyone can deny that Donald Trump was angry and animated a lot of the time without affecting his chances at all of being elected. Joe Biden spoke about how he would have beaten Trump up if they were in high school. Ronald Reagan screamed at his opponent in a primary election when his opponent asked for his microphone to be turned off. Bernie Sanders is constantly angry in debates, and it's become a defining point of satire surrounding him. Fundamentally, the same reasoning for not being confrontational wasn't asked of white candidates. Their anger was strength. Their shouting was assertive, not violent, not threatening. And this does play into some studies on the matter. Black boys aged 10 to 25 are perceived to be an average of four and a half years older than they actually were. 
and they're perceived to be innately more guilty than children of other races. Another study showed that black men are seen as larger and more threatening than similarly sized white men, and more capable of causing harm. But even less apparent than that, when there was a study sending out identical applications to various jobs, those with a Middle Eastern or North African name on the top of their application needed to send 90% more applications than those with white names to get a call back. That hasn't changed since the 1960s, according to the co-author of the study. However, I think it's worth being honest here. Most of our audience is British, Harry and I are British, so it may seem that this entire spiel was irrelevant to how we live our lives. But the last study I referred to was actually a British study conducted by the University of Oxford um, with 3,200 applications sent out for UK jobs, with every applicant being for someone who had been a UK citizen since at least the age of six. The only difference was how white the name sounded. My point is that while the USA has a more obvious history of racism, we can't deny the problems that the UK faces too. In 2016, the Lamy uh, Review presented similar inequities in our justice system. For every 100 white women tried at Crown Court, 163 black women were tried, and 208 Asian women were tried. Not only is that disproportionate, but it's even worse when proportionally more white women are arrested than black women at a rate of about 100 to 88, but black women were tried more at a rate of 100 to 163. Even when adjusted for the rates in which they are arrested, black women are tried more, and Asian women are tried even higher than that. These are fundamentally unbelievable statistics, and they're British ones. Additionally, we can still assess our history. Even if we put aside the atrocities of the involvement in the transatlantic slave trade, or, or the British Empire as a concept, which we shouldn't if we're going to have a comprehensive discussion in the matter, we have more recent examples of why there are racial disparities in the UK. One example is Windrush. The Windrush generation were immigrants uh, to the UK from the Caribbean, um, obviously the overwhelming majority of whom were black. They were um, encouraged over to help fill, fill shortages in labour after the Second World War, particularly in manual jobs such as cleaner, cleaners and drivers. Effectively, they were invited over as cheap labour. Was that better pay than they were getting in their home countries? In most instances, yes. But it meant that these communities formed, mainly in inner cities, with limited education, because they didn't receive it in their home countries, and very low wages because they weren't being adequately paid when they arrived. And we've already discussed the results of communities on low wages and with limited education. It caused disparities, as it still does. But it's worth noting that the black experience in the UK can vary depending on your heritage. Many first-generation immigrants from Africa are well-educated professionals who can afford to migrate and do so because um, the pay in their profession is better here in the UK than it is in their home country. As a result, their children and so on often grow up in reasonably wealthy and, and an educated household. 
uh, often gaining higher academic attainment than the national average. Even though they benefit from this, they remain affected by the disparities in the justice system, and they can actually be the way that many people justified the disparities from the Windrush Caribbean communities. This exact thing was done by the uh, Seaborne Race Report. The government commissioned a report, um, and it pointed to the differences in attainment between African-descended communities uh, and Caribbean-descended communities, and then claimed it to be a cultural difference. As such, they claimed the UK cannot be uh, systemically racist because these communities are to blame for their own cultures, uh, which cause the disparity, rather than taking responsibility for the failure to adequately resource Caribbean communities and address disparities. While America has no opportunity to ignore racism, we do. But we can't. We need to comprehensively talk about the impact of the largest empire in the history of humanity. We need to address the wealth divide that exists between racial groups. We need to adequately teach about the Windrush generation and the shop signs that used to read no dogs just before going on to read no blacks, no Irish, no Jews. Normally not in such reasonable language. Most of this piece was about American racism. And truth be told, it's because I know more about that, as do many of us. I was taught about the US Civil War in history, but I was not taught about the British Empire. I was taught about Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and Malcolm X and John Lewis, but I wasn't taught about uh, Althea Jones the coin. I wasn't taught about um, Darkus Howe, Olive Morris, Lenford Alfonso Garrison. In fact, I had to Google their names. We don't do good enough teaching about history or even modernity. And that's what this project is about. It's about promoting political awareness. It's about keeping people aware of who has power and how, of who is exploited and who is the exploiter. It's about people in the government, but more importantly, about the government and the people how it affects us every day, and how much power we actually have to change that. The truth is, the headline is not about the headline. It's about the story. It's about what's beyond the sensationalism, and what the events around us really mean. Every week or two, I will do a piece like this, though shorter, as this took me a very long time to write. Uh, I'll find a headline, and I will analyse the story underneath, so that we actually know what's going on. And more importantly so that we can do something about it. If you've even made it this far, thank you very much for listening. Uh, I really appreciate it. This took a lot of work. As always, you can find us on Instagram at whatiscreamsoda and on Twitter at creamsodapod. But you can also find my personal Instagram on Twitter, both on at Sam Hewlin, S-A-M-H-U-E-L-I-N, uh, and the headline uh, on Twitter at podtheheadline and on Instagram at the headline podcast but there's nothing on there yet. Or you can just search The Headline with Sam Hewlin and it will come up. Hopefully, I'll have an episode out this Sunday on the new podcast. Um, but if not, you might have to wait an extra week. Thank you very much for listening. And as Harry says, ciao.